Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 44 on March 11th, 2022, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we're talking taters. This is part one of a two-parter. We're discussing the evolution, domestication, and spread of potatoes with an eye on why I argue they are the best candidate for humanity's staple after we transition away from fossil fuels. We'll also have institute updates, and I'm joined today, as you might hear in the background, by my seven-month-old daughter, whom we sometimes call Sweet Potato, which works out well for today's topic. Although, yes, I know sweet potatoes are different than other potatoes. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, subscribe to us on YouTube, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts, as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. Also, some podcast distributors are putting ads on our podcast. Unless you hear me doing the ad, someone else is making money on that advertising. Consider supporting us by underwriting a podcast. Find out more at our website, lowtechinstitute.org slash about slash support. This episode is brought to you by the Culinary History Enthusiasts of Wisconsin, which is a mouthful, so most just say CHEW. They sponsored the original version of this talk at the beginning of the pandemic. CHEW is an informal educational nonprofit that holds regular meetings with speakers on anything related to food, especially local eats. You can find them at chewwisconsin.org. They're still meeting on Zoom, so even if you're outside the Madison area, they're worth checking out. You can support them through donations or memberships. Again, that's chewwisconsin.org. Visit lowtechinstitute.org about support to sponsor an episode. Okay, today we're talking taters, like I said. And the main point that I want to get across today is that potatoes should be considered a valuable part of food security in any crisis and in a future where people are growing more of their own food locally, which is going to happen if we're less dependent on fossil fuels. And so today what I'm going to do is talk about the evolution, domestication, and spread of potatoes across the world. We'll talk about introduction of potatoes to France and a little bit about the Irish potato famine. And then next time we'll be talking about potatoes' place in our future and the best practices to grow them based on some USDA-funded research that we carried out here at the Institute. One of the things we should first ask is, what's the point of agriculture? And one of the things that happened after the Neolithic Revolution 10,000 years ago, which is when uh, we stopped being mobile hunter-gatherers and started being sedentary agriculturalists. Okay, yes, also, good point. One of the things that happened after the Neolithic Revolution was we were able to have craft specialists because not everyone had to be working to gather food all the time. About 90% of pre-industrial societies were growing food and about 10% created other things. Think about blacksmiths or weavers. These are all types of craft specialization, pottery. Anyone who's not growing food but making something and then trading that for food, that's a craft specialist. And by having surplus agriculture, we're allowing part of society to do non-food gathering Uh, non-food growing uh, work. Now, what's important about surplus agriculture is that it's surplus. It's able to be stored. If you're a hunter-gatherer, 
and you're just gathering food as you need it, then you are not socking it away for the winter, right? You're just going somewhere where you can get food in the winter. So being able to store food, we're able to have a lot more uh, sedentary life, stay in one place, build up um, possessions, uh, work on different uh, craft specializations um, with more tools because we don't have to carry everything around with us. So basically it allows us to be sedentary. And across the old world, cereals dominate the staples. They're what's stored in granaries. I mean, granary comes from grain, right? Cereals have a long shelf life, much longer than any fr uh, fruit or vegetable, at least before germ theory and our, our Louis Pasteur's understanding of canning, we weren't able to store these things. So cereals were really important. They're dry. When they're dry, they're, they keep for years. So we see wheat, barley, oats, and other cereal grains in the West, as that is Europe. And then we also see things like rice and millet in the East. And these are stored um, in long-term storage pits or granaries or other places where they're kept cool and dry. In the New World, we see corn uh, become the dominant grain that's stored. Again, it stores once it's dry for quite a long time. But one question I have is, what other mammal lives on seeds, which is essentially what grains are? There aren't a lot of them. Birds do, but they're not mammals. Well, the only mammal that lives on seeds is rodents. And <laughs> I'm not a rodent. You're not a rodent, probably. Well, maybe there's hypersentient rodents listening to my podcast. If so, welcome. Consider sponsoring uh, an episode. Uh, anyway, so because we're not rodents, uh, our guts have not evolved to live on seeds. And so we can't just eat a whole bunch of raw flour. We can't eat a whole bunch of raw corn or rice and get any nutrient value out of it. We have to do what I like to call as pre-digestion, meaning we have to grind them, ferment them, bake them, cook them. In some way, we have to, to make this stored grain that is uneatable by, um, by us generally into something that is edible and releases those nutrients to us. If you know anything about harvesting and processing grain, you know it's a very onerous and time-consuming task, right? Just the, the harvesting alone, you have to cut and bundle and dry and then thresh the grain off the head, um, and then it can be stored. And then after that, you have to grind it, soak it, let it rise, cook it, right? So there's there's a lot of steps in there, and, and I know because I've done a lot of them. Uh, we've been growing our own wheat now for a few years, and yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot of work. And now what about tubers? Contrasted to grain, tubers generally, like potatoes, only have to be grown, dug out of the ground, the soil dusted off, and then they're put in cool storage. And then when you want to eat them, you just have to cook them. Some tubers you don't even have to cook. Uh, carrots and others you can eat just as they are. And mammals have been eating tubers forever, as far as we know back in, in history. And so humans, um, our guts have evolved eating tubers. Um, they're a, a friendly starch or food source for our stomachs. And this is important because one of the big differences humans have with other primates uh, that we're closely related to is we have much smaller guts. That's because we eat really high quality food, uh, nuts, meat, um, and other nutrient dense food. So we don't need as large of a uh, intestinal tract to absorb all this food, unlike say gorillas, which largely eat uh, leaves and other are low nutrient density foods. They have to have a lot more intestines and, and gut to absorb the, the scarcer nutrients out of a larger mass of food. And so it's really helpful for us to have nutrient dense food. It allows us to power things like our brain. And then when I say power, I mean metabolically, our brains take up about 25% of our metabolic energy, uh, which is a lot more than other primates because we have such big brains 
And this kind of allows us to do all the things we do as humans. And so, and so having access to this high density food is really important. Another really exciting thing about potatoes is that they're complete, nearly complete nutrition. There was an anecdotal study um, that had people just eat potatoes for three months and they appeared completely healthy after being checked out by a doctor. Um, and I'm talking just plain potatoes, nothing with butter or, you know, uh, uh, loaded, um, loaded baked potato, nothing like that. Just straight potatoes, uh, boiled or baked. Potatoes have good quality protein. They have a lot of water-soluble proteins, some minerals and trace elements, especially if you eat them with the skin. Um, they have, provide a lot of fiber. Um, even as little as 100 grams can supply a significant percentage of the daily protein requirements. So potatoes, unlike most other grains, are a nearly complete nutrition. Corn, for example, once um, soaked in lime water, and that's uh, not the fruit lime, but the chemical lime, once soaked in lime and made into tamale or tortilla, if you eat it with a bean, you have a nearly complete protein that replaces meat. That's why corn and beans were such a useful combination for the new world um, because it had high protein. But you could also just eat a potato and you would have that protein as well. So potatoes, so much easier um, and so much more complete protein. Uh, you can kind of guess why I'm saying potatoes are a great option for a staple if you have to grow your own food in an emergency. It's no coincidence that in the movie The Martian, Matt Damon grows potatoes on Mars. Uh, that's because potatoes would be a really important uh, staple anywhere we go in the universe and colonize. All right, so now we're gonna zoom back and we're gonna look at where potatoes come from and how they're domesticated. Solanum tuberosum, or the wild ancestor of what we now know as uh, modern potatoes, can be found all across the New World, at least, well, the western half of the New World, actually, um, all the way up into the United States, um, on the west coast, and then all the way down the Andes, uh, down to Patagonia. And potatoes are actually a complicated plant to study, and that's because they have what's known as environmental plasticity, meaning if you take five potato tubers from the same plant and plant them in different ecological zones, they're going to look different. And that plasticity is great. It makes them really adaptable, but it also makes them harder to study because you might think you're looking at different cousins of the same plant rather than the actual same plant. Um, additionally, there's tons of wild varieties. Because it has a diverse wild um, contingent that easily cross-pollinates with the modern one, it, it really makes the dividing line between domesticated and not domesticated really kind of difficult to trace. Whereas things like corn, it's really obvious when you look at the difference between teosinte, uh, which is the weed that corn uh, was derived from, and modern corn, there's no question which one is domesticated. And finally, potatoes are rather recent domesticate. So again, that boundary between domesticated and not is a little fuzzy. Another thing that makes potatoes really adaptable is that they produce both sexually and asexually. They can produce fruits and they can um, set seeds and those seeds can be grown out into new potato plants and they may be great and they may be terrible. You can check out uh, the Kenosha Potato Project. Just Google for Kenosha Potato Project and you can find a group of uh, potato breeders who have so much information on great ways to uh, grow out your own potato varieties and, see, and test them out. And then asexual production is what most of us do, which is taking old potatoes and popping them in the ground, and then they 
grow again um, because the potato is actually just kind of a, a stored, uh, still alive section of the previous plant that then starts growing again next year. This plasticity and its and its adaptability to various climates makes it a, a great domesticate because it can be grown all over, but it also makes it hard for us to study. So let's back up one step and say, what makes something a domesticate? And Generally speaking, when it comes to plants, uh, humans domesticate something when they remove it from its wild cousins and make it more palatable, that is, make it taste better, and usually make it yield more, that is, more um, edible portion per unit of, of plant, and then also um, removes things that are non-digestible or makes shells or other barriers for us to get in there um, and get out the good stuff, it, it reduces those generally. So we select the best, the biggest, and the best tasting um, and the easiest to get at. And that, and that generally, over time, um, reduces the things we don't like and increases the things we do like. Sweet, sweet Potato here is talking about how much she likes potatoes, mashed potatoes primarily, a little milk mixed in. And so potatoes, you can see, are started out as kind of a small, bitter, uh, round tuber underneath these potato plants, which are a member of the nightshade family, so you wouldn't be eating the potatoes, plants in general, right? You'd just be eating the, the tubers anyway. But they were small, and they had a lot of that green compound that makes them uh, bitter. And so it's kind of a curiosity as to why people would domesticate them in the first place. You know, if it's a tuber that's not much bigger than a golf ball, it takes a, lot of, uh, a bit more work to, to make them palatable. Uh, but we think about 7,000 years ago, the first wild potatoes were really proactively selected for being more domesticated. And, and from about 7,000 years on, we're starting to see evidence of potato domestication around Lake Titicaca in the Andes. Because the potatoes that were first domesticated were from the high altitude Andes, they had to be adapted and stepped down slowly to be able to be grown all across the Andes. And potatoes were the Andean pre-Columbian staple. And when most of us think of the Andes and we think of ancient societies, we think of the Inca, although the Inca were just the most recent incarnation of various large-scale complex societies that ruled over large sections of that mountainous area. They had a far-flung empire, they had complex engineering works, a thriving bureaucracy and state, and this was all made possible because of surplus agriculture, specifically potato surplus. Coupled with a relatively recent introduction of maize, uh, they had states before they had corn, so it just wasn't a, a, a little extra bonus. They stored potatoes in koya, or which are storehouses, and about... 50 to 80% of their storehouses were full of potatoes. So think about big stone buildings with steep roofs stuck on mountainsides, um, and these would have been filled with potatoes. And they planted potatoes differently than we did today, um, and for good reason, food security. And one of the things I like to talk about is, you know, having a diverse stock portfolio. And when I say stock portfolio, I don't mean the actual stock market. I mean having a diverse network from where your food comes so that if one of the things that you depend on for food fails, you have others that you can draw on. And that's exactly, I've taken that from the Andes because that's exactly what they did. They had a great need for food security and diversity because every two to 11 years, they would suffer from the El Nino Southern Oscillation event or just the El Nino, which is Basically, the equivalent of here in Wisconsin, uh, imagine if over a decade, one year with no warning, we would have the climate of New Mexico, and then it went back to normal, and that happened once every decade. That would really influence how you 
planted. It would change things quite a lot. You might plant some drought-tolerant things alongside your regular stuff just in case this was a drought year. In the Andes, they had to do this even more so because they were depending on it for their lives. And so they had a number of strategies to make themselves food secure. One of them was planting a variety of potato sorts together. And this diversity of planting lots of uh, varieties of potatoes together means that some of them would survive regardless of what the climatic conditions were. And the, the Inca also planted their potatoes differently. Instead of digging them into trenches like we do, they would dig trenches, put the potatoes on the higher area between the trenches, then use the trench fill and llama dung to cover the potatoes, and then they would grow in the high spots between the trenches. Uh, the trenches then would take away extra moisture so that the potatoes wouldn't become waterlogged. Potatoes were also planted in a variety of locations and ecological niches, so that, think of the Inca Empire not so much as a wide area, but as a high up and down sort of a vertical empire. So they had lots of different micro microclimates as you went up and down in these valleys. Um, they created some extra warm spots and some extra cool spots so they could plant potatoes in different areas to protect them from a potential El Nino year. They also made a social safety net um, known as the vertical archipelago, at least that's what anthropologists call it. And this is where resources were shared from the coast all the way up to the tip top of the highlands um, among family groups. So some years one area would produce more than the others and would share and they'd understand that in years where they didn't do so well, they'd be repaid from their uh, cousins and extended family in other areas that did do well. So they were trading potatoes from the Midlands for fish from the, from the coast, for llama meat from the, the high plateaus. And finally, potatoes were preserved in the highlands by exposing them to freezing temperatures, which uh, draws out moisture, um, and then they'd be trampled on and frozen again, and that process would be repeated until basically all the moisture was frozen out of them, which is essentially what freeze-drying is. And they stored chuño, which is a freeze-dried potato, for years. They also saved meat this way, which was called charqui, which is the origin of our word jerky. And so some people have called uh, the Inca the first socialist state because they had a social safety net and traded amongst themselves uh, to help preserve uh, their society in times of need. I wouldn't call it the first socialist state because socialism depends on first having um, industrialization, at least in the classical uh, definition of what socialism is. So it's not. Uh, it just had a social safety net is what I would say, or social insurance through trade and barter. So now let's see how potatoes leave the Andes. And this is kind of a just-so story. We don't really know exactly how things moved. And so a lot of the first that I'm going to say here in this telling of the spread of the potato is a little approximate. Um, it's the first we know of. They may have spread earlier and wider. We just don't have the evidence of them. So the sort of potatoes that left South America was the subspecies that was adapted to cultivation in the lowlands. And so it had less diversity and le it was less adaptable than the, those that grew in the uplands where they had to have more um, plasticity. And this lack of diversity will play a really big role later on when we see potato blights because blights and other uh, maladies really like monocrops. Monocrops are much easier for them because if they're adapted for one of the plants, they'll attack all of the plants if it's a monocrop, whereas in a diverse ecosystem, uh, it has trouble adapting between different versions of a plant. Um, and so... This is one of the reasons that we see pesticide use in large-scale operations today. Um, and also this 
variety that came out of the lowlands is completely human dependent. It can't really survive on its own. Now, it, it's not really clear who or when um, spread potatoes around uh, the world. There is no Johnny Potato Tuber uh, in this story, although uh, maybe in France we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, one story, and it might be untrue, it very likely is untrue, is that Francis Drake, the explorer, um, gave the potato to a friend who was a botanist, and he had his gardener grow them out, and he tried to eat the berries instead of the tuber, and he found them disgusting. Again, they're part of the nightshade family. I don't recommend eating any of the potato plants or letting your dog eat them, or cat. He told his gardeners to dig up the plants and burn them, and during that process, one of the gardeners tasted one of the tubers, the potato, out of the fire and realized that it was delicious and saved the rest. Now, that's kind of a just-so story. It might not have happened, but again, it's a, it's a good story. It could have happened. Now, think about the logistics of moving a potato. If you've ever grown potatoes, you know that the seed potatoes grow when they're, well, damn well ready to grow. So you might go into your larder and find a whole bunch of, um, of shoots coming out of your potatoes. Mine are starting to do that now in March. And if they were used to the periodicity of the southern hemisphere, that means they were wanting to grow in the northern hemisphere's winter. So it's likely that the potatoes made it to the Canary Islands on slow ships, right? You're thinking the 1700s, right? They're on wooden vessels with sails. Um, they would have been, you know, packed in, growing in earth and uh, in, you know, like half a barrel or something, who knows? Um, and they would have gotten them to the Canary Islands, and then they would have had to let them rest there a few years in this equatorial uh, kind of area until they could reset their growing clocks and then got them to uh, Europe. At the time that the potatoes were introduced, we see an increase in population. And it's possible that this better quality of food and the amount of calories that potatoes could add to a diet would help increase population by supporting more children, bringing um, women's nutrition levels up high enough that they begin to ovulate more quickly after childbirth. So their periodicity between births uh, would go down. That would increase population as well. Um, and also children could be weaned more easily on mashed potatoes because they were an easily digestible good protein. It also fit into a gap in the agricultural landscape because potatoes could be grown on land that was otherwise too high or unsuitable for things like wheat or rye. Yet, even though it was this super tuber, uh, potatoes weren't adopted immediately as an answer to all of Europe's food woes. It was often seen as unfit for human consumption in some locations. Old cultural beliefs about food were hard to change. For example, when I lived in Germany, I asked my host mom if she could pick me up some oatmeal to eat for breakfast. And she responded, what are you, a horse? Why do you want to eat oats? Those are, that's just animal food. But they also like muesli, which is oats. I didn't point that out at the time, but as you can see, cultural beliefs about food are, are, are difficult to change. Potatoes also weren't in the Bible, which back then was a big deal. You don't eat things that aren't in the Bible. They're unbiblical. Um, it was only after the Thirty Years' War, which, of course, we all remember, uh, was 1618 to 1648. I don't need to tell you that, but just in case. Uh, potatoes could be found widely spread across the continent. They become a resilient famine food during times of unrest, even if they weren't a beloved food yet. And now, if there was a Johnny Potato Tuber, it would be a Frenchman named Anton Augustin Parmentier, uh, who was fed on potatoes for three years as a prisoner of war of the Prussians during the Seven Years' War, which 1756 to 1763. And he was so impressed with his health after confinement that he undertook an exhaustive study of the potatoes and nutritional profile. He was a botanist by training. 
and he was able to convince King Louis and Marie Antoinette to appreciate potatoes because if the king likes it, the nobility is going to like it. The rest of the nobility followed suit, and there's great drawn images here of Parmentier showing a potato field to King Louis and Marie Antoinette. But we know those names. They are bywords for excessive, unloved nobility um, because, of course, they lost their heads. And because there was such anti-monarchy sentiment rising in France, commoners didn't want to eat potatoes, even during times of scarcity. And probably all remember from history class, the French Revolution was largely in part due to increasing grain prices, which raised bread prices. And at the time, an average French person was eating two pounds of bread a day. So if grain prices go up, that's going to have a big impact on your your ability to eat food. And the uh, mass noun of hungry people is mob. Yet still, people didn't want to eat potatoes because they were associated with the monarchy. So Parmentier was, I would say, a master of human psychology. He... <laughs> planted 40 acres of potatoes outside of Paris and had them guarded by soldiers during the day. And this obviously increased the curiosity of those around. Now, guards were given uh, permission to take bribes. And then at night, there was no one guarding the fields. So you can all guess what happened. Uh, many potatoes were stolen and they soon spread out and they were later heralded as the food of the revolution. Um, and they saved countless lives by providing that extra nutrition grown on marginal land. And, of course, the, um, the revolutionary French could feel great about stealing the potato from the monarchy, uh, when, in fact, they had basically been duped into stealing the potato. It doesn't matter, really. Um, it all came out in the end, I guess, except for the Marie Antoinette and King Louis. Not so much. And now we're coming to where you all expected this to go. Potatoes... At the same time they were becoming the food of the revolution in France, they were expanding for use in Ireland. And so this will be a shortened version of what I've recounted in episode number nine, if you're a long-time listener, titled Food Distribution. I actually talk about the um, distribution of food and famine in the world, and I talk some about the Irish potato famine, but I'll reprise some of that here. So in the popular telling, or at least the jaundiced Anglo view of this, or the, the British view of this, um, and I'm paraphrasing here and I'm exaggerating for effect, the, the profligate Irish Catholics had too many children and overpopulated their little island, and when a disease devastated the potato crop, people starved because they had become too dependent on this one potato. By the numbers, a million died and a million moved away from an original population of 8 million. So that's the most commonly known version of the story, um, but we're going to talk about how that's not the whole story and about how actually uh, the British were to blame for the deaths. At least that's, that would be my argument. And this story starts with Thomas Robert Malthus, who was a well-educated, upper-class English mathematician, and he had become the curate of Oakwood Chapel in Surrey, which is kind of a minor religious job, uh, kind of a make-work thing for the upper class. And like men of his time and station, he had too much free time on his hands, and after being in contact with subsistence farmers in his church, probably for the first time ever that he's really in regular contact with, you know, the pores, he came up with one of the most dangerous mathematical equations of human history. And he put this out in a self-published pamphlet called An Essay on the Principle of Population in 1798, which I'll link to in the show notes. And he noted that the human sex drive makes population growth exponential. That is, it grows more and more and more. Whereas food production increases linearly because we only 
open up more land or it, it's slower to increase slower than at least the population curve and now this is just before the industrial revolution supercharges a lot of our food growth so obviously we know he's wrong because he's looking at it from the middle ages on not knowing that there's about to be a giant leap forward as fossil fuels um, make things more effective because we have more power behind us now in malthus's imagining as population grows faster than food production scarcity occurs this leads to war, famine, and disease, and these are what he called positive checks on population, meaning they slow down population growth. And we can also initiate what he called preventative checks, meaning delayed marriage, abstinence, that sort of thing, to slow down population growth. But he posited resource scarcity leading to war and famine was inevitable. And because it is a you know, law of nature uh, or a mathematical certainty that there's going to be famine and war, then there's no reason to really try and stop them. It's completely natural. It's not the fault of the British colonial administrators um, or colonialism in general. It's just inevitable. And this wouldn't have been that important a hypothesis if he didn't become the professor at the East India Company College. This is where colonial administrators were educated. So all these people learned that famines weren't the fault of mismanagement, but were in fact, you know, God's way of punishing the immoral, oversexed, overpopulated, poor, uneducated colonial bumpkins of Ireland, India, China, and even rural England. So this is a, this is a really dangerous idea, and it gets put in the hands of the worst possible people. And, you know, we should point out today, population control is still a popular theme in many environmental and even conservative circles of thought. You know, it's poor people's own fault for having so many children that they're in such dire straits. It's exactly the same argument. Some of you may have read Paul Ehrlich's Population Bomb, which came out in the 60s and argued that we are going to have overpopulation, not enough food, and that's going to lead to conflict. And that was right before the Green Revolution. So people who herald the inability of us being able to grow enough food to, for our growing population have said so exactly before some sort of new growing technology comes along that proves them very wrong. Now, I'm about to say that we have problems, um, and that problem is that we use so much fossil fuel in growing our food that once we don't have fossil fuels, well, we're going to have trouble growing food for ourselves. And that's not because of population growth. It's because we've become dependent on a finite resource to grow our food, but we'll talk about that in the next podcast. So back to Ireland and the potato. So two centuries before the introduction of the potato, um, the Irish colony ate a mixed diet of meat, dairy, and grains, and they exported their surpluses to their rulers in yeah, I know their rulers in England. And before I go any farther, um, you should know that I'm of Irish. Scottish and English descent as well as Swedish. So, you know, I have dogs on both sides of this fight. So the potato arrived in Europe and the Irish immediately saw an opportunity. They planted potatoes on marginal land and they grew much of their, their own calories from this super tuber. Uh-oh. Somebody's ready for a nap, either that or she's upset about what's going to happen to the Irish. Okay, so this freed up more of their high-quality products to sell and export. Over the centuries, the English came to depend on these export, and the Irish became dependent on the potato as their source of calories. In fact, the English mocked the Irish potato as the perfect crop for a country of lazy Catholics, at least that's what they would have called them. They probably said this, of course, through mouthfuls of Irish beef. Um, about 70% of English food was produced in Ireland in the early 1800s. 70% of English food came from Ireland in the early 1800s. 
So I don't know, maybe they just felt secretly guilty about taking all this food from Ireland. And so they mocked them and their potato. I don't, I don't know. And then in 1845, the bacteria uh, Phytothora infestans, which is Greek for plant decay, uh, arrived in Europe and turned the potatoes rotten. The Irish tenants, though, had contracts. They owe, They had given up their land. They become tenant farmers. And they owed their landlords beef, ham, and grain which they had to give up so that they could stay on the land, but they didn't have then potatoes to eat. So while they're starving to death, they are still exporting food to England. The villain of this story then is Charles Trevelyan, who, as it happens, had been one of Malthus's students at the East India College. He was in charge of the Irish relief program. And if you think the coronavirus response has been mishandled, at least it wasn't purposeful neglect. Trevelyan said... Posterity will trace up to that famine the commencement of a salutary revolution in the habits of a nation long singularly unfortunate and will acknowledge that on this, as on many occasions, supreme wisdom has educed permanent good out of transient evil. Okay, so let me translate that into modern English. History will judge that the famine will change the miserable Irish ways, proving that God has created permanent improvement out of temporary pain. He was basically saying this is God's plan. This famine is going to be good for Ireland. Just in case there's any doubt about that, here's a letter he wrote to an Irish noble. He said, quote, The judgment of God sent the calamity to teach the Irish a lesson. This is the guy in charge of the relief program. So if you think there was a delayed or bungled response to COVID-19, imagine if the president or Tony Fauci had said, you know, this is God's plan. He sent us this virus. He's going to clean out you know, some of our population to teach us a lesson. Could you imagine? That's a completely different story. And an eighth of the Irish population died of starvation, which, if that were the coronavirus, that would be 41 millions, not 1 million, uh, Americans who died. I'm just trying to impress upon you the scale of this and the absolute repulsive leadership that was in place at the time that just allowed it to happen. It was thought that there was, quote, no reason except their own willful mismanagement why the Irish should not grow as fine a crops as wheat as are raised in the Lothians and, after feeding themselves, export the surplus to our shores. That was written in the Times, the English Times, um, in 1880. What? How, how is that even possible that they were saying the Irish couldn't grow enough food. There was a willful ignorance. And not everyone was ignorant of the fact. The radical pamphleteer William Cobbett wrote at the time of the, fa of the famine, hundreds of thousands of living hogs, thousands upon thousands of sheep and oxen alive, thousands upon thousands of barrels of beef, pork and butter, etc., etc., shiploads and boats coming daily and hourly from Ireland to feed the west of Scotland, to feed a million and a half people of the west riding of Yorkshire and in Lancashire, to feed London and its vicinity, and to fill the country shops of southern England. We behold this while famine raged in Ireland among the very raisers of this food. So if you didn't know that the Irish were raising a surplus of food, you were putting your head in the sand. So following the famine, long-distance transportation further reduced the Irish ability to revive its economy because in, in the late 1800s, it was cheaper to buy American ham than to buy local Irish-raised ham. So you can see it wasn't just the potato bacteria that caused this. It was the purposeful mismanagement of colonial administrators. And I'm heaping a lot of derision on them, but, you know, rightly so. They 
laughed and said it was a good thing while people died. And in the future, we're going to see reductions in the productive capacity of our industrial agriculture. And we are going to have to make tough decisions about where and how we get our food. And this is why I think potatoes are so important. They were a famine food at first, and then they were adopted as a beloved food. Um, they supported an entire country or many countries, many people in many countries over the years, and they're easy to grow easy to store, easy to eat. As long as we're careful and we look at the history of the potato, where it's done well, where it's failed, and probably mine a lot from the Inca and how they were able to have a wide diversity of types of potato that would grow in many different environments will be really helpful for us as our environments change and we have more challenging growing conditions as well as the fact that we're going to have to be doing a lot more subsistence growing as fossil fuels are no longer available in the foreseeable future. So the next podcast in this series is going to be about growing potatoes, what it could look like in 20 years if we're having to grow a lot of our own food, what it would look like to be growing our own potatoes. I will talk about a USDA study that we did about the best ways to grow potatoes without mechanization and how you can adapt them for your own use. And that's going to be great because the next podcast will be out just in time to get planting your potatoes in April. So stay tuned for that. Subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, to be sure that you hear about the next podcast as it comes out. So, to sum up, potatoes have spread from a wild cultivar in North and South America to be adapted to support one of the largest pre-Columbian empires, the Inca Empire. It was adapted and brought to Europe and, frankly, the rest of the world. I didn't get into anywhere else. And spread out, uh, first as a famine food and then as a staple. And I think it will be our future staple because it is so easy to grow, store, and cook. And so I'm just in love with the potato. If, if you want to read more, you can check out the book just called Potato by John Reeder. If you want to learn more about Malthus and the effects of his idea, you can check out The Malthus Factor from Ross. And a special thanks to Glenn Stone at Wash U for turning me on to the Irish potato story and just more of thoughts along these lines in general. Uh, again, stay tuned for the next time when we're going to talk about practical use of potato uh, in a coming future. And thanks again to the Culinary History Enthusiasts of Wisconsin for sponsoring the first version of this talk. Make sure you're subscribed to our podcast feed so you get part two, where we'll talk about the nitty-gritty of growing potatoes yourself based on our USDA research. Now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. Our compost, our hotbox composting study is uh, continuing on. Uh, basically, we are building modular composting units that <coughs> excuse me that hold uh, right now horse manure and other composting materials uh, push air through them and then push the generated heat nitrogen and carbon dioxide and moisture through grow beds uh, to help grow plants in the off season so check out our um, website lowtechinstitute.org and click on the research tab and there you can go down and find the hotbox composting link uh, to find more about that. That's it for this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Tune 100 off of the Sweet and Joyful album by Crowander. 
That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Non-Commercial License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Alike License, meaning you're free to use it and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend or giving us a rating. It helps people find us. Thanks so much. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by its members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute, membership, and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. Find us on social media and reach me directly. I'm scott at lowtechinstitute.org. Thanks and take care. So just Google just Google for Kenosha Potato Project, and in the upcoming in the upcoming future, which is redundant, uh, in the future 